Welcome to the Reflective Teacher Podcast, brought to you by the Jewish United Fund of Chicago. I'm Martha Weil, and together with my real-life co-teacher and co-host, Lindsay Elliott, we're bringing you interviews with experts in early childhood education. We hope these stories will inspire you and give you that aha moment that we as teachers find so refreshing and clarifying. Over the course of this episode, we hope you'll reflect and make connections that will help you bring intention and motivation to your classroom each day. Today's episode is on something that I think a lot of early childhood teachers and just teachers in general wonder about in their classrooms. It's about talking with children about death. Our guest on the show is Aaron Weissman, who is a preschool teacher in Washington, D.C. And I first heard Aaron speak on this subject when I went to a presentation she gave at the Paradigm Conference here in Chicago last year. I was totally blown away by her attitude around having conversations about death with young children. And I came out of her presentation feeling so much more ready to have those conversations in my classroom, too. In this episode, Erin talks about how children are naturally curious about death, and they don't necessarily attach the same emotions to it that we do as adults. If you're an EC educator, death will come up in your room at some point or another, and for that reason, we feel Erin's episode is a must-listen if you're wondering about how to talk with your students about death, too. So without any further ado, here's our interview with Erin Weissman. Hi. Hi. How does that sound? That sounds great. That sounds awesome. Great. I feel like maybe we should start with the language. Yes. So <laughs> we have a story about our classroom. <laughs> right. One of the things that uh, I loved about your presentation at Paradigm was um, the language piece, like why it's so important to use straightforward language when talking about death with young children. And... <laughs> It's funny because me and Lindsay in our classroom, we have snails and yeah, so this is our first year having snails and one Monday we came in and our classroom is used for some synagogue programming over the, yes, over the, (laughs) do you have that too? Yes, we all struggle to share. Yes, (laughs) but yeah, so we came in and whoever had been in there, I don't know, but they had dumped sand and dumped, and yeah, in our snail tank. So a bunch of our snails died, and we wanted to gather the class to like tell them and let them know that this had happened. But yeah. our wording was <laughs> like, "You guys, we lost some of our snails, and they all oh no. where are yeah. they exactly? <laughs> <laughs> they all ran up, got up, and they were like." well, are they over here? Like, maybe they just crawled out. And, like, yeah. how are they going to get back to their family? And it just it created more issues than we thought. I mean, they kind of went with it. But I do feel like you and I kind of looked at each other. Like, okay, we knew that it was, like, lost in translation. But we didn't really know where to go from there or if we really wanted to go. <laughs> right. I Anywhere from there. It was definitely on my part being, like, yeah, I don't know what to like, say. Like, I remember looking at you and we kind of, like, we had this moment. But, yeah. Um, yeah, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the language that you use and what you think teachers should use when they're talking to their kids? Absolutely. Um, I think that as teachers, we are always walking this line between being an open resource for our students and being respectful of our family's needs to introduce information and topics to their children. 
Um, when it comes to really challenging topics like death, parents often have their own language they want to use with children. But I find because we are sometimes the introduction, it's important to use the most basic language possible. For a child, uh, you know, saying someone is lost, saying someone passed away, saying something moved on, those things, those words and phrases make us as adults feel comfortable because they're vague and our understandings are vague. But for children, it's sort of meaningless. It's like a puzzle that they have to solve and it doesn't actually give them any information when that's what they're looking for. So I choose to use um, very basic terms as close to science as possible. So I say died, I say death, um, and then I define those terms. So in our classroom, we had guinea pigs, um, very ancient guinea pigs. (laughs) Um, I inherited them from a teacher whose class I took over, And my first year as a teacher at the school I work at now, the first guinea pig died. And even just now, I was tempted to say passed away because as an adult, that's what I've been trained to say and that's what makes me comfortable. But to a child, it makes no sense. So we decided as a teaching team to be very honest and straightforward with our children and use this as a learning opportunity and an opportunity to create a safe space. Uh, It happened towards the middle of the year, so we'd already started talking about cycles. A lot of times we're teaching cycles and we don't even realize it. I grew up in Los Angeles, so we did not learn about seasons, but in my Washington, D.C. classroom, we talk about seasons all year long, and that's a cycle. So you can compare death and life to cycles you've already explored. And so what we did is we sat in a circle and... I said, this morning, Coco died. And that means that his body isn't working anymore. He isn't breathing. He isn't playing. He isn't eating. He is done being a living guinea pig. And this brought up a lot of questions. How did he die? Where did he go? Things like that. And this is just the jumping off point, right? Um, I'm a Jewish educator. It sounds like y'all are too. Yep. And as Jewish educators, if we're following midot or guidelines for positive behavior, it's really important to set your coworkers or your children on a path of truth. And if you start with open language like death and died, then that's just the beginning of their path. And then those children can take that language home with them and their parents can add to it or change it in whatever way makes them feel comfortable. Because in my classroom, we are supposed to be teaching Judaism and Jewish thinking and Jewish practice, but not all of my children, not all of my families are Jewish. So instead of using Jewish terms or euphemistic terms, just using the most basic language possible will give not only the children but the families a really good opportunity to continue their learning in a respectful way. That's super interesting because we have been wondering a lot about parents and just the cultural ideas about death and how you like navigate that when when you're not sure. Right. Well, and even within Judaism, there can be a lot of variation. 
uh, even within a direct family unit, there can be a difference in opinion or a difference in belief. So when we use terms like death and dying and define them in a very um, scientific way, then we can move on to thinking about it through a Jewish lens or families can think about it through a Christian lens or even a non-religious lens if that's what makes them feel comfortable. Uh, so mm -hmm. another yeah. example is this year, the other guinea pig died. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was seven, <laughs> which is ancient for a guinea pig. <laughs> he lived a long, happy life. Uh, but this was at the very beginning of our school year. So we really hadn't had the opportunity to set the um, feeling or set the ambiance in our classroom as a space for asking tough questions we were just doing like class rules and this is where your cubby is and so this was sort of diving into the deep end but we talked about how their body cuddles his body wasn't working anymore and the question was what does that mean their body doesn't work I mean when I'm sick even then my body is working so the way that I described it in response to that question was there are many different parts of your body that do an important job. Your heart beats, it pumps blood to all of the different parts of your body. Your lungs breathe, helps you live and play. When one or more of these parts aren't doing their job, then the body can die. And that is a very visual way for children to think about death, like a machine. Different parts of the machine work together. Most of my students have iPads at home. Mm -hmm. They can understand that when the you know cord on the plug is frayed the plug isn't going to charge their ipad it's that kind of thinking that very visual concrete thinking that can allow for content assimilation in this situation i see yeah i think i, I remember you talking about like inside body that was helpful to me too to help describe that there's a difference between how things look on the outside and how things look on the in or what's happening on the inside absolutely uh when in both situations when our guinea pig died we made the choice to bring the guinea pig body into the circle we made sure that none of our friends touched the guinea pig body but we felt it was important for them to see that this is coco his body is dead he doesn't look scared he doesn't look like he's in pain, but the part of his journey where he's a living guinea pig is over. And then they can see that and see that it's not scary looking. And then they can explore and learn new things from a place of curiosity and respect rather than a place of fear. Right. I think so often we're like presenting these things to kids and then all of a sudden it just gets we put a lot of emotion on it. We're like, it's sad, but, you know, so I, what do you think about that sort of talk? Well, if you're moving past the, you know, scientific learning about what's happening to the body, mm -hmm. then you can start talking about the emotional feelings because yeah. especially when you're talking about a class pet, children may or may not have big emotions about it. Right. Uh, but, it will often bring up big emotions they feel that connect with other experiences with death that they've had. Um, we, as a class, decided to bury Cuddles in a nearby park, and we did a Jewish-style service. We said the Mourner's Kaddish, 
and each friend got to put a handful of dirt on top of the grave that the teachers dug. And at that point, we suggested if friends wanted to share a memory of cuddles, they could. But at this time, every friend in my class shared a memory of a person in their life who had passed away. See, I just did it. Who died? (laughs) Um, So, you know, they loved cuddles. They cared about him. But this is really an opportunity for them to process feelings that are connected but not directly from this experience. So I had one friend say, cuddles is dead. My grandpa is dead. And that was all. That's all he wanted to share. He didn't cry. He didn't laugh or smile or anything like that. But he was processing. He shared that out loud. And uh, his family came to me like two weeks later and said we had a really amazing conversation about where Grandpa went after he died. And that's the kind of thing that makes me feel like my process works and is positive because that's not my place at all to have that kind of post-death spiritual conversation with the children because maybe their family feels grandpa went to heaven or maybe their family feels grandpa became one with the earth which is how I describe the Jewish feelings about death so it's really important I think in that space to say as a teacher I feel really sad that I don't get to play with the snails anymore. Or I feel really hopeful that the snail's body or that cuddle's body will help the earth. Or I'm really looking forward to the next pet that we get. Any feeling, any part of the spectrum of emotion should be welcomed and understood. And even if a child says, you know, I think that cuddles' body is really stinky right now that's a feeling right it it makes the other friends laugh it kind of takes whatever anxiety that child is feeling out of the equation you can say I can see that you're really thinking about cuddles body and it doesn't have to be an extremely serious moment Um, especially when we're talking about a class pet because for a child they're not trying to be disrespectful they're trying to process feelings that maybe they've never had before yeah, that's mm-hmm. so true. And I like the I feel statements, too. Showing yeah. just, like, different... Modeling. Yeah, modeling different, like, feelings and different statements, like you were saying, um, I think is really helpful. Yeah, and I also think that, like, the language in general and the way that teachers should talk to kids, the language gives a nice boundary so that you aren't going into, like, that big um, talk about your beliefs that a family right. would nece- a family would more go into. But I do remember that you said, I really like the language that you used. Um, I think a child may have asked, what happens after you die? And instead of saying, like, well, I don't know, or saying your opinion, you said, well, Jewish people believe. And I right. think that's such a beautiful way to start it, not only because it infuses Judaism, but it also is just separating it from you and from them it's just this is what a certain group of people believe right and especially if you have older friends like four or five year olds Mm -hmm. um but to me that's an older friend that's our we have (laughs) those friends (laughs) right um so if you have friends at that age they're just starting to accumulate the seeds of empathy um and to be able to start that perspective-taking process is really challenging. So when you use language like Jewish people believe, 
then it allows them to either separate themselves from that or identify with it. So when I say, when I said Jewish people believe, some friends said, well, I'm a Jewish person. And I said, well, you can ask your family if this is what they believe. Uh, and when we're talking about what Jewish people believe, uh, we talked very much about cycles. So I mentioned this a little bit at the beginning right. when we first started talking, but we talked about the physical part of a body cycle. You know, a baby is born, a, a snail is hatched. <laughs> yeah. um, and then that creature's body grows and it lives and depending on the creature, it has feelings and a favorite food and a favorite movie and it lives its life. And then when the part of its journey or its cycle where it is a living body is over, then Jewish people believe that that creature's body can continue its journey helping the environment. So we talked about this understanding that a body can decompose. Again, this is for older friends, but a body's really important ingredients or nutrients can be used in an environment to help plants grow, to help other animals be strong and healthy. And that's what prompted our friends to vote on burying cuddles in the park. And it ended up being a really beautiful experience because we, we went to the park, we did our service, we were very reflective, and we placed a big flat stone where we buried him. And we said, we'll come back and visit to see how Cuddles' body is continuing his journey. And, you know, that happened in the fall, so you don't see a lot of plant growth or animal activity in the winter. But we visited again in the middle of spring, and vines had started growing around the rock that we had placed at his grave and it ended up being this really concrete example of how a journey continues and then you don't have to talk so much about the spiritual journey which i think is the part that makes parents uncomfortable or wary but you can talk about how this isn't the end this isn't the last piece of the journey there's no ending place it's a cycle that can be so helpful to them i bet just because they're able to see it in action, kind of, and, and see right. that the body is, is good for the earth and useful. Right, and it's proof, you and, know, as a, yeah. all children are little scientists, yeah. and they're always looking for evidence, and that kind of thing is perfect for evidence. Right. Do you find that, like, you, every year you somehow, you, like, um, do, like, a study on death, or... Definitely cycles, it sounds like. But do you think that does death come up every year for you? Or has death it? has come up in one way or another every year. Uh, we don't always go as in-depth as when our pets die. Um, but we, you know, it depends on the group of children and what's happening in their lives. And a lot of times, even if it's not happening to every child, if it's happening to one child, and by happening, I mean they're experiencing some form of death in their circles. Um, they're going to talk about it whenever they get the chance. So during um, rest time, I'll hear a friend whisper across the room, you know, my grandpa's really sick right now. <laughs> it, it's really important to them, and they're looking for outlets. And instead of tensing up, which is, you know, I 
feel sometimes, oh, I don't want parents to feel like I'm encouraging this kind of talk when it's not, quote unquote, this kind of talk. It's natural curiosity and it's exploration. And if you support the respectful, scientific exploration of any topic, really, including death, then children will not only see you as a positive and trustworthy resource, but they'll also really get an understanding of how to explore things in a respectful way. So, you know, the first year I was teaching at my current school, uh, Kogo died. Last year, thank God, no pets died. (laughs) Um, And this year, Cuddles died and then was immediately replaced with a fish. So I'm sure that conversation is coming back around. (laughs) Um, But, yes. (laughs) Yes. But uh, I think what's important is to not necessarily always be ready. You don't need to keep your death flashcards in your back pocket, (laughs) but um, just always be welcoming of topics that Mm -hmm. are hard for adults but brand new for children and I think that can be true for really any kind of learning and you just need to be able to set boundaries with the children to be respectful of their families and if you can do that and use very basic language understandable appropriate language then your children feel safe in your class both emotionally and intellectually to explore whatever is interesting to them and uh, my school is Reggio Emilia inspired. That's sort of the root of all of our learning. And I'm wondering too, do you do you always uh, go into life cycles or just cycles in general? Because I'm feeling like that might be a great, like almost background knowledge for kids to have. Right. Um, we always talk about cycles in my class. I think even teachers who don't think they talk about cycles are always talking about them. Um, I used weather and seasons as an example earlier. Last year, I had a group of students that was fascinated with baseball. And sports come around in cycles. And even within a sport, you know, rounding bases, that's a cycle. Or the batting lineup, that's a cycle. And you can talk about them in so many different ways. And as long as you're using words like rotation or cycle or even pattern with younger friends, um, then they'll have just basic understandings if you get to something like death. Um, we, in, I have the seniors, I have five-year-olds, <laughs> and after my class is over, we don't have an elementary school, they go on to a new school. I see. And ch- changing schools, besides getting a sibling or someone dying in your life, it's one of the biggest changes they've experienced it's a new community it's huge so we do the life cycle in terms of change so we have a mikvah in our building which is so beautiful the spiritual bath jewish people use to celebrate change in many different ways we have an incredible mikvah director and we each year do a mikvah exploration and mikvah is a beautiful cycle you have to use natural water, which allows us to teach the water cycle. And the water cycle is really the starting point for the life cycle. Uh, so we talk about how water is used to represent change, and change is happening not only to the water, but to you. What are ways that you have changed? And usually they're like, well, I got a haircut last week. Um <laughs> 
but with some guidance and scaffolding, they say, well, I learned how to read other friends' names this year. And that's a huge piece of change for them. And then we talk about the present. How have you changed even today? And a friend will say, well, I opened my lunchbox by myself for the first time. And then you talk about change for the future and they can say, well, I'm going to a new school or even um, I'm going to try watermelon for the first time next week. Um, (laughs) And these changes can be really small or really huge, but just understanding the concept of change is really helpful when a big change happens. And that change can be positive, like going to kindergarten. It can be negative, like a grandparent dying. But this understanding of cycles, this understanding of change, all of these things are connected. So even if you don't experience death, which is a good thing, um, you have the background tools. They have these tools for when they do experience it. That's amazing. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you came to think all this and teach all this in this way, because I feel like you're just so um, good at it, yeah. for lack of better Thank words. You. <laughs> I really appreciate You make that. me want to like get in there and just have a dead pet, to be honest with you. bring the smells back one of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really the highest compliment. <laughs> um, well, I... I can give you a little bit of background on me and then talk about my teaching philosophy, if that's helpful. Totally. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I went to college in New Orleans. I got my bachelor's degree in early childhood education and child psychology, and I got my teacher certification there as well. And while I was in New Orleans, I was teaching with a mentor teacher, charter school, second grade which is immensely different from private school pre-K. But a lot of the things that I learned in that work environment carry over to my current work environment. So this idea of trusting children is really the basis of my entire teacher philosophy. Mm -hmm. If you trust a child with an upper-level thinking, if you trust a child with a complicated understanding, they can sense that trust and they will strive to understand. And even if it's challenging for them, even if the way you went at it the first time didn't work for them, they are still capable of learning and understanding at this high level. It just doesn't necessarily mean their learning method is the same as their desk partner. Right. So as a teacher, it's our responsibility to figure out what method is most effective and respectful and then to trust them to understand or to explore at the highest level within the best method for them. So I had a class with many different kinds of learning challenges and positive learning strategies and it forced me and my mentor teacher to be really creative and really flexible and I learned a lot through that just you know this strategy of teaching isn't working it's not because the content is too complicated it's because my teaching method is not appropriate for this child so understanding that moving into pre-kindergarten as a Reggio Emilia inspired teacher I could really individualize for children or for cohorts of children even 
because I don't have, you know, common core breathing down my back and I don't have testing. I can really take the time to explore through the lens of their interests or to explore at the rate that they require and always keeping in mind that I trust them to understand as long as I can figure out the best way to explain it or the best way to guide their exploration. Then they ultimately get it. They assimilate the content. It's just about the journey, right? I've been talking about journeys this whole time, but Mm -hmm. it's always about the journey. Um, So now that I am a teacher in this very different setting, I still feel very strongly that if you trust children to be their own best advocate and scaffold that kind of behavior and learning, then they can understand really complicated ideas. Uh, And that's really where this kind of exploration comes from. The guinea pig died. I'm going to trust that they'll be able to understand what death means as long as I can help them explore it in an appropriate and respectful way. Totally. Could you share a little bit about how you were raised around the ideas of death? Absolutely. Um, So I was raised in a household with a younger brother and a mom and a dad, and they were very, very open about anything, really. If I had a question even if it made them uncomfortable and you know children can tell when adults are uncomfortable (laughs) but even if it made my parents uncomfortable they were always respectful of my perspective but um so I had tons of questions and my parents tried their best to answer every question and I think if a parent is listening to this and thinking well I don't have all the answers that's one of the answers. That's what right? I'm sitting here thinking. I'm like, how do you, like, if you're mm-hmm. not necessarily the most comfortable, whether it's about death, whether it's about race, whether it's about, like, people's sexual preferences, like, how do you do that if you're like, oh, God, I feel like not <laughs> confident that I'm going to deliver this information the right way? Well, I think, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, choosing books like appropriate children's books to help you is one resource especially if you don't even have a starting place of where you think you want the conversation to go using a book to guide the conversation is a really positive strategy I also think that you can say I don't know the answer to that question but we can do research and then together you can look it up like um I think I was talking to my grandparents the other day and they didn't understand the term gender non-binary. And that's a very complicated idea for my grandparents. Right. And that's, and you know, obviously grandparents aren't children and they were very respectful and interested in learning just like my students would be. So that's a time when you can say, let's do some research and then you can look up all of the information together. And with a two-year-old, you know, they're not going to want to sit at the Google with you. (laughs) But a four- or five-year-old, if you take some time and look up resources, you can share with your four- or five-year-old, look, I didn't know the answer, but this is what I found. And I think that within itself is modeling positive learning. 
Totally. Admitting when you don't know the answer is really important. I think that a lot of teachers, including myself, struggle to do that sometimes because you want to have all the answers for your students right and or even you want to have all the answers for the parents in your community totally to be able to say I don't know let's learn about it shows children and families for that matter that you're not perfect you don't know everything no adult knows everything but there's a way to find out Mm -hmm. and that's the core of all learning so I think especially as we continue to see generations being really positive and confident with language about themselves, their orientations, their identities, it's important to always be open to learning about those things. And I know it's, it's different from our conversation about death, but it's really connected. If you aren't comfortable or if you aren't sure to say, I don't know, let's learn about it together. I love that. I saw that. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Um, I'm ready for it in our classroom. I know. <laughs> Lindsay was like, I, I was like, listen, she was like, I'm not going to talk as much because I just, I, you know this because you I was like, I don't know this at all. So. I was like, you're going to be so ready. When, <laughs> like, because I came out of it and I was like, I really think you just um, said it so nicely. Like, it was my baggage that I was carrying that I right. was like, Ugh, I don't want to say died to a kid. And I, it wasn't because yeah. I didn't think they could handle it. It was totally because I was afraid of what would happen with parents if I yeah. was, like, totally straightforward. But then I was like, you're totally right. Like, if I want to give them basic language, it needs to be the truth. And without the basic language, they're going to have no idea, like, how to navigate. And they're just, I like, I might as well avoid it. But so this gave right. you, like, the greatest... Um, kind of path to figure all that out with and they do right that's how i felt thank you of course well thanks for talking with us erin of course thank you for your time and your interest this has been really a positive experience for me i appreciate it well we're so excited i mean we'll keep you posted on everything all right bye Bye. bye so that's our show If you would like to learn more about Erin and the work that she does, you can head over to www.thereflectiveteacherpodcast.com. That's our website, and on it we post show notes for each episode and resources so you can learn more about each topic we discuss. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our mailing list so you can stay up to date on all things Reflective Teacher Podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Reflective Teacher Podcast or find us on Facebook under the same name. Thanks for listening.